Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick. And with me, as always, ladies and gentlemen, back from South Florida, fresh off the airliner, he is our captain. Well, it's good to be back, Gary. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Last week, I had something for the first time called Lunch Pale Ale brewed over at Breaker Brewing Company, garage-grade four-and-a-half bottle caps out of five. Lunch Pale Ale is a traditional American pale ale brewed with nugget and cascade hops. It's hoppy but smooth and clean, and today's beer was brought to us by, first up, a big thank you to Davies in Harvey's Lake, Pennsylvania. And a big shout-out to Eldridge and Blakely, Georgia. And a long-distance cheers to Belvar Salmon and Marseille Side. And a big shout-out to Tiffany in Maplesville, Alabama. We also have Bree in Parts Unknown. Bree is a big fan of the captain, to say the least. And last but not least, we have Ajay in Quakers Hill, Sydney, Australia. And like you said, it's good to be back from the little mini-tour in Key Largo. I was on tour with See You in the Funnies, which is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and also the Nathan Witt Band, which is from... From where? (laughs) From from from, Parts Unknown. From Parts Unknown. And that's enough of the beers, man. Yes, sir. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. True crime buffs all know the legends of the true crime world. The serial killers who have stood out, leaving an indelible blemish on human history. 
through their prolific violence and destruction. Gacy, Dahmer, Bundy, BTK. Their names are synonymous with the word monster. They are often considered to be the worst of the worst. Before these notorious killers roamed the country and haunted our streets, leaving wakes of death and terror behind them, and before the term serial killers was coined, before we knew about serials as we know them now, there was another monster, a mass murderer so evil that he deserves to be in the same category as these infamous killers. A monster that still terrifies and haunts. Someone so cruel and diabolical that there is evidence that perhaps at least one of these ruthless serial killers knew of his work and imitated him. This is the story of Dean Coral, the one they call the Killer Candyman. Well, Captain, we're going to start off this week by talking about some pretty unhealthy relationships. I don't like to talk about my personal life on the show. Well, let's talk about a man in his 30s. This is Dean Coral, who we will come to know quite well this week. He managed to worm his way into the lives of two boys from broken homes, taking on the role of some sort of twisted father figure. As a result of that manipulation and dominance, both boys' lives would ultimately be ruined. Dean Coral met David Brooks first. Brooks also lived in Houston Heights, or simply the Heights, as it's most commonly called. The Heights back then was a lower, middle-class area of Houston, a blue-collar neighborhood that had become seedy and run down. They met years ago at a candy factory owned by Dean's mother, where Dean Coral handed out free sweets to teens and children. So he's like Willy Wonka. Something like that, yeah. Now, David was born in Beaumont, Texas in 1955. His parents divorced when he was five years old, and he moved back and forth between his father in Houston and his mother in Beaumont. Coral started helping Brooks, giving him money and a place to stay from time to time to get away from his father, and generally supporting him. The two occasionally took trips to the beaches in South Texas with other boys. David was smart, but he was small and wore glasses, and he was picked on a little bit by the other kids. So he was easily swayed by Coral's attentions. Coral had a lot of influence over the young, insecure boy. Brooks said Coral was the first adult male who didn't make fun of him for his skinny body and glasses. Pretty soon, David idolized Dean Coral. When David was 14, Coral essentially began grooming David, and the two began a relationship whereby Coral would pay Brooks $10 to allow Coral to perform fellatio on the boy. David began spending all of his time with Coral, 
And despite being a decent student, he dropped out of school and hung out with Coral most days, even moving in with him at times. When he's 15, he walks in on Coral raping two boys. These two boys were tied to a bed. Now, later Coral would ask Brooks for his silence, and he would buy that silence from Brooks by giving him a green Corvette in exchange for his silence. He told Brooks that he was part of a gay pornography ring and that he had been paid to send boys out to California. And I think that he included those two boys in that statement of, I sent those boys out to California. Right, so he he was running some kind of a sex trafficking ring. So we have Brooks, who's going to then introduce a kid by the name of Wayne Henley to Dean Coral. This took place in 1971. Wayne Henley was described as an above-average student with an IQ somewhere between 110 and 120, but Henley dropped out of high school in ninth grade. He had a lot of financial responsibility on his shoulders. He had to contribute to the income, the household income, that his mother needed to raise his three brothers. So Coral filled a need that Henley had, financial security. Coral was constantly giving Henley and Brooks gifts and in return was asking for favors or tasks. So do we believe that Dean is getting his money from his parents owning the factory? Well, this is not like a huge candy factory. This is not like Hershey's um, or Mars or any of those other really big ones. This is, this is, they had a house and at some point they opened up a candy factory out of their house, turned the the house into a business, right? Like sweet Pete's. So this was a business that employed a few people, but above that, I don't know how much profit was on top of paying the people that worked there, including his mother. But he did have a Corvette that he just gave away. So yeah, he bought, he bought the kid a used Corvette. Mm. They started becoming uh, a thing. You know, this this group, this trio. And eventually, Henley became sexually involved with Dean Coral. They also started planning some petty burglaries. They would steal a lot of TV sets. And this is where I go back to Dean Coral not having a ton of money and not having a ton of money from his, his uh, work at the candy factory, right. let's say. So he worked at the candy factory, but he also worked as an electrician. He had two jobs, and then on top of that, he's paying these kids and giving these kids a lot of gifts. Right. So I think that he had to supplement his income by getting these kids involved in burglary, stealing things, and then selling them. So Brooks, Henley, and Coral became a motley trio, let's say, riding around town, doing drugs, partying, and meeting up with other teenage boys. Brooks and Henley would help get boys into Coral's van and then take them to his apartment. The three hosted parties at Coral's apartment planned specifically to entice boys whom Coral might like, and this would be young, white, thin, and good-looking teenage boys. Wayne and Dean saw each other nearly every day. Coral was a frequent visitor at Wayne Henley's home and would chat with his mother. In fact, he even worked on her car a couple of times. So this is not a relationship that's being kept secret from the teenage boy's family. Right. Mary Henley divorced her husband in 1970 after he shot at her during an argument. Dean was so close with the family that he even ate Easter dinner with the Henleys. And as stated, he would help 
the Henley family out with some different things. But do the Henley family, do they know it's a sexual relationship? No, no, not at all. They think that this is a friendship. So Henley, he has to act a little older than what he is. He's providing financially for his mother and younger brothers. Right. And then we have Dean Coral, who is... The the neighborhood basically thinks of Dean Coral as a nice, professional, clean-cut guy, but a guy that kind of acts younger than what, what he is. And so Dean would typically drive around in his white van with a and had a black couch in the back. Of course he has a white van. And they would say that... Do, do, they, do, do they all have white vans? Well, can we just stop making white vans? <laughs> can we just can we disagree as a nation that we're not going to produce any more white vans? Well, a lot of the neighbors would say that often you could see a dozen or so kids that would pile in the van and he would take them for rides. Now, we should mention that the three Brooks, Henley and Dean Coral, from all outside perspective, they were inseparable. Right. So, all right, Captain, about 10 dozen red flags here, right? Mm -hmm. We have uh, a man in his early 30s hanging out with two teenage boys very often, but a lot, a whole big group of teenage boys and taking crowds of kids for rides. Yeah, yeah. So Creepy stuff. Yeah, and you would think that neighbors and people on the outside looking in would wonder, what is David Brooks, Wayne Henley, and Dean Coral, you know, what's going on with this trio? Well, the problem is, though, there is no father figures. So in that case, it's like people are like, oh, he's just being a good Samaritan. Yeah, some type of mentor. Yeah. Well, we need to start talking about missing teenage boys. But this story is not going to be quite, it's going to be quite a bit more complicated than just one isolated incident. Because in 1971, 72, and 73, thousands of, That's right. Thousands of juveniles were reported missing in or around the Houston, Texas area. Now, that number jumps off the page, right? You say, whoa, hold on there, Nick. That can't be right. We do need to keep in mind, this is a very heavily populated city. It's what? Today, I think it's the third or fourth most populated city in the United States. Back then, I would assume it to be about the same. And we have to keep in mind that Even in Columbus, even in our area, Captain, there are a lot of people that are reported missing, and very quickly that missing persons report is filed away in a trash can because they turn up within an hour or two hours. Somebody panicked, hit the panic button, called somebody in missing. And a lot of times, especially back in the early 70s, a lot of juveniles would be runaways. At this time, you know, we still have some people heading out west to California. We have a lot of these kids would be 17, 17 and a half year old kids that are just not where they are supposed to be. So most of these kids would turn up. The ones that didn't, sadly, were still ignored by local law enforcement at the time because this was a time when police chalked the majority of disappearances up to being runaways. But regarding three of the many that were reported missing and the last names of these three individuals, Cobble, Jones, and Hillegeist, all three boys' parents called the police when their sons disappeared, and they insisted that their boys were not runaways. And in all actuality, many teenage boys disappeared from the Heights area in roughly a three-year span and for no apparent reason. In fact, almost 50 
5-0 teenage boys simply never turned up again. One of these boys was David Hillegeist, who disappeared on July 30th, 1971. David, then 13, decided to follow his brothers to the town pool on his bike. Greg Hillegeist, David's brother, called home and asked for his mother to come and pick them up. His mother, Dorothy, was surprised to learn from Greg that David never showed up at the pool. The family rule, like most families, was the kids were not supposed to go anywhere without telling their mother. When David did not come home that evening, Dorothy and her husband called neighbors. They called David's friends. They even searched their home and, of course, his room. In his room, they found all of his belongings, including his wallet and money. They started driving around the neighborhood searching for their son. Finally, at sunup the next day, Dorothy called the police. Police provided virtually no assistance to the Hillegeist, telling them that David likely ran away and would come home soon. David would be listed under the, quote, runaway classification, and there would be no official search for the boy. Dorothy Hillegeist was a protective, involved parent who was close with her children, and she knew David would not have vanished of his own volition. She continued to canvass the town looking for any clues. Finally, someone told the Hillegeist that David was seen in the company of his 16-year-old friend, Mally Winkle. Dorothy immediately called Mrs. Winkle to ask if Mally had come home. Mrs. Winkle told Dorothy that Mally called her just before midnight and said, We are in Freeport, Mother. This is a popular swimming and surfing area in the Gulf of Mexico. Mrs. Winkle asked what he was doing 60 miles away, and her son replied that he was just with a bunch of boys, and they went to Freeport to go swimming, and he would be home later. Mrs. Winkle also heard from her brother, Ben, that he saw David and Mally get into a white van not far from the Hillegeist home. Dorothy plastered the town with missing persons flyers and went door to door looking for her son. A friend of David's named Wayne Henley helped distribute missing persons flyers. She traveled to other areas to search for him on the basis of tips. Unfortunately, the Hillegeist would deplete their life savings looking for their son, even hiring a private detective. Yeah, that's a, that's a shame because you want to do anything you can. Dorothy called the Houston PD constantly looking for updates on her son and passing on rumors she heard and possible witnesses that they should check into. One day, she told the police that she had learned that Mally had a friend who drove a Plymouth GTX and added she has seen a GTX driving through the neighborhood. She even wrote down the license plates. License plate TMF724. Now, Captain, she passed this on to Houston PD. If an officer would have looked into the matter, they would learn that that car belonged to a man named Dean Coral. And even with all these leads, the hell guys are never going to see their son again. Let's fast forward to August 8th, 1973 in Pasadena, Texas. The blazing sun beat down on this industrial city, which is an offshoot of the much larger city of Houston. Around 8 a.m., chief operator for the Pasadena PD answered a call. On the other end of the line, a male voice said, I just shot a man. Again, the caller said, I just 
shot a man and I want you, I want you, the operator interrupted, slow down and give me your name. The caller answered Wayne Henley. I'm calling from 2020 Lamar Street. Immediately, they're going to dispatch two police cars to the address. Patrolman Jameson in car 361 was the first to arrive. Here is what he observed. Three teenagers standing on the sidewalk. One was a female and two others were male. All appeared red-eyed and one was crying. A white 1969 Dodge van was in the driveway of the home. Wayne Henley the crying one, identified himself to Officer Jameson. Jameson later described Henley as a thin youth with light brown hair and brown eyes. He had the beginnings of a goatee. Henley handed Jameson a twenty-two caliber pistol. The officer... Oh, wait, hold on. He had the beginnings of a goatee? Well, he's a teenager. He's got that... You Remember when we were teenagers and some of the guys were like... Uh, yeah, I can grow a mustache, and you look at it, and you're like, yeah, that's not a mustache. Right, but it's like saying, this guy had the beginnings of a douche canoe. <laughs> well, he hands the officer a twenty two caliber pistol, and the officer observed immediately that the six chambers were empty. The other two teens were Rhonda Williams, only 15 years old, and she clutched Wayne Henley's arm while they spoke to Officer Jameson. The third teen was Tim Curley. Which, just like his name, he had curly hair. Yeah, shoulder-length hair, blue eyes, and braces. And brief questioning, Wayne Henley told Jameson that he had freed himself from some handcuffs and shot a man named Dean Coral. Jameson looked inside the home and saw Coral's body and returned to the kids. He put the three teens in his patrol car and read them their rights. Then, Detective Mulliken arrived at the scene. He opened the front door and entered the house. The first room, a living room, was separated from the kitchen area by a long bar. Melikin slowly walked into the room, and to his left, he turned in a hallway. He stopped abruptly, taken aback by the sight. Directly down the hallway, just beyond the door to the bathroom, lay the naked body of a man. His face was buried in the beige carpet at the crevice where the wall meets the floor. On the man's left shoulder and back were several tiny holes. His legs were entangled and a long telephone cord attached to a red phone lying on the hallway floor. Having been warned by dispatch that someone had been shot, Mulliken presumably wasn't surprised to find a body. But what he found in the bedroom, however, was another story. In the bedroom, the beige wall-to-wall carpeting was covered by a large sheet of clear plastic. On the plastic lay a six and a half foot long by three foot wide pine board with handcuffs and straps fastened to each corner. The connecting chains running through large holes bored in the wood. A large knife and a wide roll of plastic was in the corner of the room. And the only furniture in this room is a table standing against the wall. Mulliken called his lieutenant and suggested that he take a personal look at this crime scene which he did. Identification. The man was Dean Coral, the dead man. 33 years old, he worked for the Houston Lighting and Power Company as an electrician. Right. Coral was six foot one inches tall and weighed approximately 200 pounds. He had been shot six times, mostly in the back and shoulder and once in the head. 
The bullet in Coral's head protruded from the skull. Mulliken began his investigation of the crime scene. He started in the bedroom. He found eight sets of handcuffs, and the keys to the handcuffs were scattered about the floor. There was a roll of tape and a black toolbox containing torture items, including some thin glass tubes, a 17-inch dildo, Normal size. rope, and electrical wire. In a second bedroom across the hall, he found a gas mask with a clear plastic visor. In the attached garage, he found traces of white dehydrated lime on the floor. The white van had a series of hooks and rings protruding from the walls. The rear windows of the van were covered by curtains, and there was a piece of stained carpet and rope in the rear of the vehicle, and two large wooden boxes with air holes one of which contained some hair. Mulliken finished his report and returned to the police station. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go, for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer 
or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code True Crime Garage 50 at factormeals.com slash True Crime Garage 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Captain. And where we left off, we were back at the police station. Now, none of the teens invoked their right to an attorney. None of them I've even asked for their parents to be notified. Henley said he knew Coral for quite a while. Coral also lived in the Heights, but recently had moved to Pasadena. Coral invited Henley to a party. Henley invited his friend, Tim Curley, and the two went to Coral's home at around 9.30 p.m. the night before. Henley, Curly, and Coral sat in the front room drinking beer, smoking pot, and bagging paint, which is, bagging according to paint. 
Yes. Okay. So this is sniffing the fumes from acrylic paint sprayed into a brown paper bag. Mm. At some point, Henley left to pick up his girlfriend, Rhonda Williams. According to Henley, he and Coral had agreed to leave for Colorado in about a week, and Rhonda was coming with them. Henley didn't tell Coral he was going to pick up Rhonda that night. Instead, he and Curly told Coral that they were going out for sandwiches and arrived back at Coral's house in Pasadena around 2.30 a.m. Now, Dean Coral was not happy that the boys showed up back at his place with Rhonda. In fact, he was extremely angry. He had other plans in mind for that evening. Well, yeah, because girls have cooties. Coral seemed to get over it, and the teens resumed their activities of smoking pot and sniffing paint until at some point the teens all passed out in Coral's living room. When Henley came to his senses, he discovered Coral was handcuffing him. Curly and Rhonda, their wrists and ankles were already shackled and their mouths were sealed with masking tape. They lie on the floor, helpless. Coral launched into a tirade, threatening to kill all of them. He brandished a pistol and a huge knife in his hands. He shouted to the teens that he had already killed some boys who had resisted him in the past and that he was going to kill them, but, quote, first I'm going to have my fun. But Henley and Coral, they had a long relationship. They had a special relationship, let's say. Well, let's not call it that. Well, Henley started trying to talk, and Coral took the tape off of his mouth. Henley began to sweet-talk Coral. He, he promised that he would help torture and kill Curly and Rhonda if Coral would free him. Hey, could you imagine being Curly? Like, dude, shut up. What are you doing? I You're going to help torture me? Well, I don't think at this time that Curly or Rhonda were awake. But if they were, that's what they'd be thinking. Oh, you just turned on us this quickly? Yeah, yeah. Great friend. Well, maybe they were coming too because at some point, Coral grabbed Henley by his wrist that were handcuffed, dragged him into the kitchen area where they continued to talk. Apparently in the kitchen, Coral and Henley struck some kind of bargain. Coral would assault Curly, the boy, and Henley would rape Rhonda. Then they would kill the two and be done with both of them. At this point, it was beginning to be light outside. As promised, Coral unlocked Henley's handcuffs. As Henley recovered himself, Coral picked up Curly and disappeared down the hall. Henley heard a scuffling and clinking of handcuffs. Then Coral returned, picked up Rhonda, and disappeared into the hallway again. Henley took a hit of paint fumes and headed down the hallway to the bedroom. There he found Curly and Rhonda shackled to a long wooden board at their wrists and ankles. Coral was naked and on his knees beside Curly. He nodded toward Rhonda, signaling Henley. Henley took off his clothes and prepared to cut Rhonda's clothes off of her with the knife Coral had handed him. Rhonda begged him not to cut the shirt. He cut her pants off and laid down beside Rhonda, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. Meanwhile, Coral was trying to assault Curly. The frantic teen was struggling to defend himself from the assault. Henley saw Rhonda was having trouble breathing, so he stripped the tape from her mouth, and she quietly begged him to get her out of this place. 
Coral stopped momentarily and removed the tape from Curly's mouth. Curly begged Coral to leave him alone. Henley could see the pistol on the small table where Coral left it. He got to his feet and told Coral he was going to the bathroom. He went, and then on his return, he picked up the gun and pointed it down at Coral. He told Coral, stop, yelling, you've gone far enough, Dean. I can't have you killing all of my friends. Coral looked up at Henley. Henley warned him he would shoot if Coral came at him. But Coral came up off of the floor in a lunge, trying to grab the gun and yelling, kill me, Wayne, kill me. Henley pulled the trigger twice. One bullet struck Coral in the shoulder, the other in the head. Coral half fell, half stepped through the door into the hallway and bounced against the wall. As he did so, his feet became tangled in the cord to the phone that stretched across the hall into the other bedroom. Still shaking with fear and adrenaline, Henley emptied the pistol into Coral's back and shoulder. Coral stumbled and crashed to the floor. Then the police were called, the body is discovered, and the teens were arrested. Now, during the police questioning, Captain, we're bringing in other people here, not just the teens that they found on location, right. but we have some of some people that know Coral as well. And the first people that they speak to is his father and stepmother, who are adamant and deny that Dean Coral was homosexual or violent saying that there was no way that he could have assaulted a teenage boy. Right. But did the cops say, hey, can you explain to us these torture devices? Um, hey, can you explain to us the 17-inch long dildo? Well, they these two would tell police that the three teenagers must have murdered Dean in a drug-induced frenzy. Yeah, they're, they're sniffing a bunch of paint, walking around town with a 17-inch long dildo. Well, Detective Mulliken returned to further question Henley. He was skeptical about the story, especially the part where Henley talked about Dean Coral boasting that he had killed before. During this questioning, Henley said that he knew Coral had killed before. In fact, he knew some names of boys that were killed. Henley even knew where some of the bodies were buried. He said in an old boat storage shed somewhere in southwest Houston. Henley started rattling off some names, Charles Cobble, Marty Jones, and someone named Hillegeist. He said these boys lived in the Heights neighborhood. Cobble and Jones, two boys aged 17 and 18, were missing from the Heights for two weeks, seemingly vanishing without a trace. And both boys' parents received phone calls from their sons, saying they were in trouble. Further, the officers discovered that there was a file on a missing 13-year-old that disappeared while en route to a local swimming pool in the Heights on May 29, 1971. His name was David Hillegeist. Interviews with Tim Curley and Rhonda Williams backed up Henley's story of the shooting, but what is clear is these two knew nothing of the other allegations that Henley was making about Dean Coral. Right. Homicide detectives were called in and Henley was able to lead law enforcement to a boat shed where he said Coral had buried some boys. Southwest boat storage was a 20 stall dry land Marina made of corrugated metal and shaped like an L the stalls 
a sizable 12 feet wide and 30 feet deep. Coral's stall was number 11. Yeah, and it had six foot wide double doors and they're going to be padlocked. Coral rented the space since November of 1971 and he was listed as a good renter who paid promptly. He had recently inquired about renting a second stall, but none were currently available. According to the owner, Coral visited the stall, number 11, multiple times a week, often seen unloading things from his white van. Officers used a crowbar to break open the lock holding the doors. The stall had no windows. It was incredibly hot inside. So he has a creepy van and he has a creepy stall. Yes. Yes, he does. And he's asking about renting a second creepy stall. Can I get another stall, please? Inside, they find a dirt floor, which is covered by two carpets, one green, one blue, and an old rusted car as well. A bicycle leaned against the wall. In the left rear corner was a 50-gallon steel drum. A dozen large brown water containers were scattered about the space. Two bags of dehydrated lime sat atop one of the containers. Beside the car was a plastic bag containing clothing and a pair of red shoes with high heels. After clearing out the stall, it was clear that there was going to be some digging. And after a lot of effort and quite some time, the digging exposed the distorted face of a young boy. They could see a cord embedded in the boy's throat. The smell of decay permeated the stall. Yeah, this kind of reminds you of Casey in a way. Yes. And as twilight approached and the digging continued, police officers uncovered a second body. Meanwhile, the media began to get wind of what happened. First, the shooting of Dean Coral. And then the search for what at the time was listed as the search for three bodies at this storage shed. Right. Of course, it was just a matter of time before the media showed up outside of the boat storage shed. Video footage was shot of an anxious Wayne Henley making a statement about the shooting. And today this is on YouTube. You can see Henley on video talking on the phone to his mom saying, Mama, Mama, I shot Dean. Reporters saw that the excavation of the storage shed was unearthing human remains. And within minutes, this story was on the six o'clock news. The body count was climbing and the sensational story of a mad sex pervert who killed boys and buried them in his boat shed made national and international headlines. Within a day, more than 50 out of state and foreign reporters arrived in Houston to cover the horrific story. The news of the mass murders in Houston reverberated around the world. Even the Pope addressed the story saying, quote, we are in the domain of sadism and demonism. Now, as mass murder in Houston author John Gurwell described it, some bodies were shrouded completely in clear plastic and the excavators would brush aside the dirt and turn away from the features that looked up at them. These were the more recently interred victims. Others were half protected by their plastic wrappings from their head down to waist. Their lower portions were shredded away by lime and time to stained fabric or leg bones and tendons. The others, those which had rested longer in their anonymity in this isolated burial pit were just lumps of decomposition. The earth had all but claimed them. 
As the bodies emerged from the dirt, they were laid on the ground outside the boat shed and numbered. Wayne Henley spent the night in a cell at the Pasadena police station. Right. Authorities weren't ready to declare him an innocent victim just yet. Police were beginning to wonder if the bodies in stall number 11 could possibly have been the work of just one evil man. Right. So you have a situation where you have a teenager that just killed his friend, Dean, that supposedly was torturing another two teenagers. Mm-hmm. And then when they're brought to the police station, Henley saying, hey, look, there's more to this story and, and there's more victims. The police don't buy it because they don't even buy that Dean would have tortured the teens originally that were in his house. But then once they go to his storage unit, they start finding these bodies. Now we have these bodies, but we don't have the why or exactly who. Right. And I think it's a little more complicated because I think what we have here is Henley seemed content to just tell them that, look, this guy threatened me and he was going to kill these two kids that were with me. So I, I talked my way out of the handcuffs and I killed this evil dude. Well, during the course of telling that story, he throws in there that Dean said, Hey, look, I've killed, I've killed kids before and I'm going to kill you guys and I'm going to take my time doing it. Right. And that's, I'm going to have my fun before that's when like, you know, when dogs, you know how they kind of, they perk up when they hear certain thing and their ears go up. That's when the detective's ears went up and he was like, wait a second, that one line right there. I want to know what this kid meant by I've killed more before I've killed boys before. Right. And that's when I think after being pushed, he's like, yeah, he has killed. In fact, I know where some of the bodies are there in this storage shed. He's sitting there and they're wondering, well, 11 people. We found 11 kids wow. buried in the shed. So we want to know more. And the questioning of Wayne Henley is going to continue. And while Mulliken was interviewing Henley, he is interrupted by a phone call. It was a Houston homicide detective. He told Mulliken that a David Brooks was brought into the department by his father, that the Brooks boy was giving a statement implicating Wayne Henley as Coral's longtime partner in luring Houston teenagers into Coral's hands. Right. Brooks claimed to be an eyewitness and that he had knowledge about Coral and Henley. Mulliken hung up the phone and looked over at Henley. He said, quote, that was Officer Lieutenant Porter of Houston Homicide. He just told me that a boy named David Brooks was making a statement there about you and Coral and the boys we have dug up at the boat shed. But right, but Henley, Brooks, and Dean, they were like a motley crew. According to Mulliken, Henley wheeled around in his chair and leaned across the desk toward Mulliken and said, that's good. Now I can tell you the whole story. Shit. Henley's confession states that he met Coral when he was about 14 years old through David Brooks. Brooks told Henley that Coral could get them in on a deal where he could make some money. Once they met, Henley's confession states, Coral told me he belonged to an organization out of Dallas that bought and sold boys, ran whores and dope and stuff like that. Dean told me that he would pay me $200 at least for every boy that I could bring to him and maybe more if they were really good looking boys. He stated, I didn't try to find any for him until about a year later. 
and I decided that I could use the money to get better things for my people. So one day I went over to Dean's apartment on Schuler Street and told him that I would find a boy for him. Dean had a GTX at the time, and we got in it. Dean and me started driving around. We picked up a boy at 11th and Studward. I talked him into going to Dean's apartment to smoke some marijuana. So we went over to Dean's. Dean left some handcuffs laying out where they could be seen. And we had this little deal set up where I would put the handcuffs on and then I would get out of them. Then we talked this boy, I don't remember his name, into trying to get out of the handcuffs. The only thing was we put them on where the locks were turned in where he couldn't get the key into them. Then Dean took the boy down and tied his feet and put tape over his mouth. Henley said he thought Dean was going to sell him to this organization that he belonged to, so he left. Then the next day, Dean paid him $200. Then a day or so later, Henley found out that Dean had killed the boy and found out that Dean had screwed him in the ass before killing him. This was the start of the whole thing, and since then, Henley said he helped Dean get eight or ten other boys, saying, I don't remember exactly how many. Dean would screw all of them, and then he would kill them. Henley stated that he had killed several of them himself with Dean's gun and helped choke some of the others. Then they would take them and bury them in different places. He also said David Brooks was with us on most of these kills. Brooks' confession stated in essence that he had been present when most of the killings happened, stating, I was in the room when they happened, and I was supposed to help if something went wrong. Brooks said, in a somewhat passive manner, once they were on the torture board, they were as good as dead. It was all over, but the shouting and the crying. Brooks confirmed that once Henley came into the picture, quote, most of the killings involved all three of us. He made it clear, though, that there had been murders before Henley arrived on the scene. Two years ago, he said, there was a boy whose name he couldn't recall, but Coral kept him alive for four days, saying it really upset Dean to have to kill this boy because he really liked him. Brooks told investigators that Coral moved almost constantly around the Heights, never staying in one place for long, and the murders occurred at multiple addresses around town. He said, in all, I guess there were between 25 and 30 boys killed and they were buried in three different places. Brooks makes clear in his confession that he didn't do any of the actual killing. Right. He said of the killings which he witnessed, quote, it didn't bother me to see it. I saw it done many times. I just wouldn't do it myself, and I never did do it myself. While he admitted to luring boys, being present for many of their deaths, helping to bury the bodies, he never admitted to committing murder. He did, however, throw Wayne Henley under the bus, telling police that Henley seemed to enjoy causing pain to the victims and that he had killed some of them. And one time Brooks told police Brooks talked Coral out of killing one of the boys and Coral actually let him go. This was a boy named Billy Rittinger. Once Brooks made his initial confession after being brought into the station by his father, he was placed under arrest. So clearly, Captain, Henley's confession went far beyond the accessory role he had initially copped to. Right. 
he actually, according to his words, killed six of the victims at Coral's behest by shooting them in the head or strangling them. So based off of Henley, right, we have this confession. We have multiple murders. But then Brooks is also saying, hey, there was these murders that took place before Henley. But then we could then assume that before Brooks, that Dean possibly killed others before Brooks was involved. Yeah, and I don't think that we can understand the whole tale of Dean Coral unless we know the story of his background. What is really remarkable and terrifying about Dean Coral was that throughout his life, there were no visible signs that he would become a prolific serial killer. And actually, no one knows how many boys Dean Coral murdered, as you just stated. Dean Coral was active and involved in his community, and by all accounts, well-liked and friendly. He was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana on Christmas Eve in 1939. His parents, Arnold and Mary, were both 23 when he was born. We don't know or have much information about Coral's young life. Uh, It was apparently fairly unremarkable. It has been reported by many sources that Dean was something of a mama's boy. His parents divorced when Dean was six. Soon thereafter, Arnold Coral was drafted into the army and was based near Memphis, Tennessee. So Mary moved to a trailer home nearby with her sons so they could stay close to their dad. Yeah. Arnold and Mary remarried in 1950 and moved to Houston. Oh, so they get a divorce. They decide to put on dirty underwear get married again. Well, he goes off into the army. She moves to be close to uh, him and his, their sons can be close to him as well. Arnold and Mary divorced once again. Uh, Arnold did maintain a good relationship and contact with his sons. In 1953, Mary married again, this time to Jim West, a salesman who up and moved the family to Vidor, Texas. The couple had Joyce. This would end up being Dean's half-sister while living there. Dean was an average student. He thrived in the school band, and he was... What instrument do we know? He was known to be quite a good trombone player. He's a real tromboner. People who attended Vidor High School with Dean, they say that he was popular. He dated girls, went to dances and drive-ins, and noted that he was extremely close to his mother. Dean also raised rabbits and pigeons. Sometime in the mid-1950s, Mary started making praline candies, and Dean went to work for his mother's candy business, harvesting the pecans to make the pralines, packaging the treats, and doing the deliveries. In 1962, Mary and Jim divorced. The family moved into the Heights area of Houston, where Mary set up her shop. The family business was incorporated with Mary as president, dean, vice president, and Stanley, the secretary, treasurer. Dean's half-sister, Joyce, also helped out. Dean had a good relationship with his father, Arnold, and he decided to follow in Arnold's footsteps and become an electrician. He got a job with Houston Light and Power. So Dean, as we said, made candy at at night and worked at Houston Light and Power during the day. There is a story reported in multiple sources that a male employee of the candy company complained to Mary uh, that Dean had come on to him and Mary, Dean's mother, fired the employee, denying that Dean would 
ever have done anything like this. In 1964, Dean was drafted into the U.S. Army, to which he applied for a hardship discharge, claiming he was needed at the family business. The Army granted this request, and Dean left the service just 10 months after his induction, according to Army records. Coral's service record was considered excellent. In 1965, the Coral Candy Company moved into a building directly across from the Helms Elementary School in the Heights. Dean became the general manager, and he seemed to revel in being known as, quote, the candy man. This was because this is as he was known to the neighborhood children. Well, and this is because he would hand out free candy when children would come into the store. He just kind of, you know, you've seen this. You've seen the scene in Willy Wonka. Mm -hmm. The candy man can. Well, in the back room of the candy factory, candy store, Coral installed a pool table. So kids started loitering at the candy factory, hanging out in the back room and spending lots of time in the company of Dean Coral. Hey, it's a good investment, though. The more they spend playing pool, the more candy they buy. Now, no one knows if anything nefarious happened during this time, if any of the boys were preyed upon. It has been noted that Dean had a private room in the back of the candy factory where he would retreat if he was angry or in a temper. And he would then emerge later all smiles. This room was referred to in several sources as the pouting room. Mm. So perhaps I have to wonder, is there, you know, was, was he going into this room at times to kind of stifle urges, having a hard time controlling himself in the presence of all of these young boys or teenage boys? Right, right. Now, in 1968, on the advice of a medium, Mary, his mother, dissolved the candy company and moved to Colorado. This was likely a difficult transition for Coral. He never saw his mother in person again, although the two remained close talking on the phone regularly. Coral went to work full-time for the Houston Lighting and Power Company. Throughout the late 60s and until his death, Dean dated a woman named Betty Hawkins. Betty was a divorcee with two small boys. Betty told the LA Times after Dean's death that the couple intended to marry in two weeks' time, and the two planned to go to Colorado to live. In an interview after Coral's death, Betty said, quote, Dean was one of the kindest men I ever knew. If he had something and someone needed it, he'd give it to them. She said that Dean was wonderful with her eight and 10 year old boys. Oh, if she only knew. She also told investigators that quote, in five years, Dean and I never really had sex saying they would hug and kiss. There were times that they came close, but never did it stating. He believed that you should be married. Betty said that she refused to believe any of the reports about Dean. Yeah. You should be married unless you're a child. Well, she said that she had visited Dean's apartment many times, often rode in his van and never once had she stumbled across anything as strange as what was being reported in the newspapers. Even when she dropped by in on Dean unexpectedly. However, Betty told Billy Bulch's mother, Billy was one of Coral's victims. We would later learn that, right? That every time she went to Dean's home, 
He had, quote, a bunch of boys around, and she didn't think this was normal. Billy Bulch's mother told him to stop hanging out with Dean Coral. It is interesting, though, to see that Dean Coral seemed to have been capable of, quote, a normal type relationship. You know, this based off of affection rather than sadistic urges. Right. But it sounds as though by keeping a girlfriend around and acting like an upstanding citizen, Dean Coral was attempting to hide who he really was or what he really was. Right. A sadistic pedophilic serial murder. Now in 1973 captain, we have, we're back to the point where we have all the news coming out about the serial killings of so many teenage boys that has rocked the Heights neighborhood to its core. And the Hillegeist, the family that we've discussed a couple of times so far, right? they're learning that their son, he possibly met his fate at the hands of this serial killer. So Dorothy Hillegeist recalled an incident that happened in 1971. On one day, David failed to return home when he said that he would. When he turned up, he explained that he and Mally visited a man in the candy factory. This was the Coral Candy Company. Right. Across the street from the elementary school. Played a little pool, went to the pouty room. Well, exactly. David told his mother, he said, there's a pool table in the back and Dean Coral lets us play pool and have free candy. Dorothy told David not to visit the candy factory again, but he protested. He wanted to hang out with his friends stating, but Mally knows him, meaning Dean, and his mother... Mally's mother actually worked for Dean. So she checked with Selma Winkle and Mrs. Winkle said she had worked at the candy factory, but she actually knew very little about Dean Coral, who worked for the family candy business. One way or another, a second time when Dave was again late coming home, Dorothy went to the candy factory herself. There she found David's and Mally's bicycles parked outside. She pushed the button at the door and a man opened it up. She asked for David. She told the man whom she presumed to be Dean Coral that she didn't want her son to visit the store anymore. When the man told her that he knew Mrs. Winkle, Mrs. Hillegas replied that made no difference. The man called David from the rear room. Mrs. Hillegas bought a box of candy and she and David left. Furthermore, Dorothy recalled with horror something that happened just a few weeks prior to the discovery of the bodies. Her son, Greg Hillegeist, was friends with a boy down the street named Ronnie Henley. She let Greg go down the street to the Henley house to play. Remember, Greg is the younger brother of David Hillegeist. Right. When Greg returned, he told his mother that Dean Coral and Wayne Henley were there. And that, quote, Dean is a real nice man, Greg told her, adding that he told me that he and Wayne were going to take me and Ronnie fishing one of these days. If Coral had gotten his hands on Greg, it's already suspected that David Hillegeist would end up being a victim. But if Coral had gotten his hands on Greg, it would not have been the first time that he made brothers disappear. Right. Even more horrible was Dorothy's recall that not only did the neighbor Wayne Henley help hand out flyers 
about David being missing, he said to her, and this is from a book called The Man with the Candy, I really, really feel, you know, sorry for y'all, and my heart just goes out to you. David could still be right around here. Sometimes the parents can't see the kids, and the kids can't see the parents. He could be right under your nose, and you wouldn't even know it. Here's something really cool, Captain. If you love True Crime Garage and if you love free stuff. I hate it. <laughs> I hate True Crime Garage and I hate free stuff. Well, then this is not for you, but I think this is for a whole lot of people out there. It's called the Stitcher app. You get the app and you get all of the old True Crime Garage episodes for free. That's like that's like 250 some episodes. For free. For free. That's right. So get the Stitcher app. And tell them True Crime Garage sent you. Also, we have our fantastic new show called Off the Record that everybody loves. And that's available on Stitcher Premium. Even I love it. That's right. All right. Until next week. We'll see. Till next time. Until. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. All right. We'll see you back here in the garage tomorrow. Hopefully the captain joins us. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.